Welcome to Nomina's Mental Health Mavens. I am your host, Joanne, and every Sunday we bring you mental health and addictions experts on a variety of topics, including advanced evidence-based therapies. Guests' opinions are their own, and some content may be triggering. Our mission here and on our Nomina Wellness YouTube channel is to make exceptional mental health support accessible to everyone. So please make sure to subscribe, give us that five stars, and maybe even share with a friend. So let's get to it. Welcome to episode four of Mental Health Mavens. And today we're talking to Sonia Dubinsky, who has 30 years of experience. She is a clinical counselor with Nomina Wellness, and we are going to be talking about the fascinating subject of the neurosequential model of therapeutics. So welcome, Sonia. You have 30 years of experience, and I thought maybe you could just give us a super quick introduction in terms of what you're training, because I know you're trained in the neurosequential model of therapeutics, and I do want to ask you how you got involved in that, but I also want to ask you a little bit about some of your history, because 30 years is pretty impressive. Okay, well, it does go back a number of years, so um, it probably dates back into the early 90s, late 80s. So I, I first started working in the Northwest Territories in residential treatment centers for adolescent youth and moved over to the Yukon, did the same thing as I was finishing my undergrad. I started actually with a diploma in social services. Then I did my undergrad in Whitehorse to the University of Regina. And from there, I started working in addictions and mental health and had moved down to Saskatchewan and then completed my master's degree. And so I primarily, I mean, I've done a a lot of different roles. I've worked as a social worker doing protection. I've done family enhancement, family reunification, a lot of family work, and um, then back into addictions and mental health when I was living in Prince Edward Island. So, um, yeah, and then... Now, sort of more on the clinical end of things, um, still working with children and families, and then we'll be talking about the neurosequential model of therapeutics and how that applies to the work that I do. Yeah, because you you interweave that within your work as a clinician, correct? Correct. Okay. Well, do you want to tell us about how you got interested in it and how you got started in it? Sure. So I was working for a nonprofit in Parksville. And an opportunity arose whereby there was some funding that became available to a number of us clinicians working in the community. So I seized upon that opportunity because I'd already been doing some research in the area. And I was really interested in um, how can we work with children in a different way that's going to be more productive. And so I, one of the things that I did know is that in the past, a number of children who had gone into the foster care system who had difficulty with self-regulation, weren't really responding in traditional treatment with talk therapy. And so once I started understanding about NMT, um, it started to make sense for me and fall into place. And can you tell us a little bit more about the model? Sure. So the model was first developed by Dr. Bruce Perry. And the model is a developmentally sensitive, neurobiological informed approach to clinical problem solving. And so it's an approach that integrates core principles of neurodevelopment and traumatology to inform the work that we're doing with children, um, families, and also communities. And so 
Dr. Bruce Perry, who's also a child psychiatrist and neuroscientist, pioneered the neurosequential model of therapeutics. And this model examines how early childhood adversity impacts the way that the brain organizes during key developmental phases. And as a child grows into adulthood, the effects from early adversity can have significant impacts in the areas of attachment, the ability to self-regulate, and particularly in the adult's interactions with others. Um, can you describe what you mean by early adversity? Like what kind of behaviors might we see with children who, has, who have neurodevelopmental trauma? Right. So early adversity can mean so many different things. It could be the child that's born prematurely um, that ends up in a, an incubator for days, weeks, or even months. And this can interrupt the normal skin-to-skin contact that a baby would normally have with its mother, um, as well as the eye gazing, the rocking, soothing, as well as the warm somatic bath that a baby would normally experience. So this can create an attachment disruption. And children who are exposed to chaotic, frightening environments where there is domestic disturbances and children who experience neglect, abuse, and trauma can be neurodevelopmentally affected, um, which basically means that their brains are not organizing in the way that they should during key developmental phases. And so the neurosequential model of therapeutic lens that we use has been expanded over time to include metrics for schools as well as caregivers. And educational systems as well as therapists across the globe are now adapting this lens for understanding early adversity with children and youth and some of the challenges that they're facing in life in schools um, as a result of trauma, abuse, and neglect. And it also provides an understanding of how a child's brain may have been impacted. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Because I'm I'm quite curious. So yeah, so what's now known through the study of neurobiology is that early traumatic experiences affect the brain's biology. If infants and children become frightened or even terrorized by events that are outside of their control, the biology of the brain is affected. Can you expand on this a little bit? Sure. So a child can become overly sensitized to anything that they perceive as a threat, which means that they are hypervigilant and they are never really in a relaxed state. And so when the brain's biology becomes affected, certain genes will get turned on while others will get turned off. And it's like something overwrites the genes creating problems. What does it mean when the genes get turned on or off? Like, do you have some examples of what can happen? I do. So I'll give you an example of a set of identical twins that I knew at one time. So two females, likely in their 40s, although one had developed bipolar disorder early on in life, likely in her early 20s, while her twin, who was biologically identical, did not. And then later on in life, the same twin went on to develop cancer, terminal cancer, and died as a result of that, while her identical twin remained healthy. So the only way to account for this is to look for environmental factors that create this. So let's say one twin was abused and the other was not. This alone can create later a predisposal for mental health and physical issues. And so if you're with, when we're thinking of genes getting turned on or off, some neural networks may become overdeveloped. The brain can be perceived as an upside down triangle. So if you're imagining it this way, the lowest part of the brain or brainstem is the survival portion of the brain. It controls the breathing and the heartbeat. And this is where all outside stimulus will come in at first. And this is also the non-thinking part of the brain. So this portion of the brain operates solely on reaction and is sometimes referred to as a lizard brain. 
I've heard a lot about the lizard brain, but why the lizard brain? So basically, it's called a lizard brain because a lizard doesn't require a complex cerebral cortex in order to survive. It just needs the most primitive survival brain that allows it to breathe and carry out the most basic functions in life in order to survive. So a child who's feeling threatened or unsafe will go into survival mode and the cortex and higher functions of the brain go offline. And so as you begin moving up the triangle, so again, picturing it this way, the middle portion of the brain begins allowing for the interpretation of any information coming in, as well as assigning value to it. Do you have an example of what you mean by this? Yeah. So if if we're thinking again, that all information will come in low to the brain, let's say there's suddenly a loud bang and we jump, we first react, we may... We may react before we even start to try and figure out what that is. So we're going to look for a template of understanding. Was it a firecracker? Was it a gunshot? Was it a car backfiring? So that children who have a sensitive stress response system may immediately go into fight or flight so that they can't even look for a template of understanding. And so as we go up the to the top of the triangle, we have the cortex. And this is a portion of the brain that allows a person to be able to reason and engage in both abstract and concrete thought. And so it further allows for the retrieval of information from the past and to formulate plans for the future. And so any interaction with people involve cues that are nonverbal in nature. So this includes things like sounds, smells, could be body posturing, facial expressions, proximity, which is how close a person will come into our personal space. And so we all have templates that we have developed based on our personal experiences. And for those of us who escape developmental trauma, we can interpret everyday encounters and stimulus in accurate ways, as well as accurately determine if an actual threat does exist. And so for a child or an individual who has been exposed to ongoing threat, sudden noises, chaotic environments, And even certain smells may be cues for danger, even when no actual threat exists. So a child may respond as though they are in imminent danger and become instantly reactive. They may go into fight or flight, freeze or fold state, or the stimulus they encounter that they perceive as unsafe, um, we call an evocative cue. So when this occurs, we say that they are out of the window of tolerance. Mm, I haven't heard of that term, evocative cues, Um, Can you expand a little bit about then the window of tolerance? Sure. So an evocative cue is really similar to a trigger. If you can imagine a child who was abused by someone, let's say, who wore Old Spice, the child may instantly become unglued if a person walks by and the child smells that scent. So the child has now paired the scent with danger and will immediately react. And so this will then knock the child out of their window of tolerance where they can stay relatively regulated. And so we all have a window of tolerance. And depending on our personal experiences, some of us have much smaller windows than, say, other people. So every system and organ of the body is governed by a specific region of the brain. And so if the brain is impacted in its organization early on, various parts of the body may not function the way that they should. And so abnormality in brain activity can mean that higher portions of the brain can be impacted. In some instances, that could be the heart, it could be the pancreas, it could be lung function, um, all can be affected, causing an individual to be predisposed and vulnerable to various diseases and disorders, including mental health and learning challenges. 
So early abuse, trauma, and neglect can also affect neurotransmitters, which are the brain's chemicals. Now, does this line up with ACEs or what's known as early childhood adversity? Yeah, so understanding how a child's brain is impacted by early adversity goes a step further in understanding that the brain development can be actually altered. And so ACEs does understand that there is a correlation between early adversity and how a child will later function in life, but it doesn't capture the piece about the brain actually being impacted. So when an individual perceives a threat of any kind, the cortex shuts down to to allow the survival portion of the brain to kick in. And so if and when the cortex shuts down, the reasoning portion also shuts down. And so if a child is always in a hyper alert state, scanning for danger due to a highly sensitized stress response system, they are unable to access the higher portion of the brain in order to reason or process the information. Well, will a child behave differently at home or school or community when they're responding to what they receive or perceive as an unsafe or dangerous situation? Yeah, so it depends on what the child perceives as unsafe, unpredictable, or threatening. So sometimes loud noises, disruptions at school can cause a child to go into fight, flight, freeze, or fold. Or a child may feel feel safer at school and not be as reactive as they are at home, where there are more evocative cues. And so we talk about something called the three R's when dealing with anyone who struggles with self-regulation issues. And so in order to assist a person in calming, it's necessary to first regulate ourselves. So if we end up becoming dysregulated along with them, the situation will likely escalate very quickly. So if we're we're able to respond in a calm fashion, we can assist them in regulating, which means that they can begin moving out of their lower brain or lizard brain and begin to relate. And once they relate, they can move to the cortex and begin to reason. And so the cortex can now come back online. And is there strategies that can be used in the moment to assist a child or youth or or even an adult to calm? Yeah, so the brain likes repetitive patterns and rhythm, and it's known to have reparative strategies. So in traditional tribal communities, patterned rhythmic activities such as drumming, singing, dancing, and chanting were used for healing purposes, as well as mental and physical wellness, shared identity, and social cohesion. I did not know that. And and finally, I know that uh, you do something called brain mapping or brain metrics. Can you give us a brief overview of this? Yeah, so basically, it's a computer-generated metric that asks a number of questions. And so the first portion of it is looking at the mother's pregnancy, what her stress levels were, what support she had or any trauma that she had experienced. It also looks at the way she was mothered as a child. It then goes through a number of childhood phases looking at attachment and attunement or any other disruptions. And so this later determines developmental risk. Then because all systems of the body are connected and governed by various parts of the brain, a number of questions are asked and then giving a numeric value. So once the computer spits out its metric, it's going to show a representation of the brain, which areas of the brain have been affected and how it compares to a child of the same age who does not have the same developmental trauma. Just, I was just going to say that we had talked about this before and I want to get it done as an adult. <laughs> Yes. Well, and actually, I have done brain metrics on adults, because if you think about a child who's been affected by neurodevelopmental trauma, 
unless that trajectory is interrupted somewhere along the line, some of those deficits are going to continue into adulthood, whether it be around attachment or just the relational piece or being able to self-regulate when they're stressed. So it's not outside the realm of possibilities to do that. So just in closing, I think it's really important that um, we have strong relational ties and opportunities for social interactions. And it's really of utmost importance for all of us. And so this includes strong connection to immediate and extended family, culture, spirituality, and community. And so when we historically, when we moved away from smaller social arrangements like clans and tribes, um, with the advent of industrialization and then urbanization, we lost a lot of our sense of connection and identity, as well as the quality of social interactions that we have. So <clears throat> as urban and town dwellers, we often don't know our neighbors. Um, and as a result, we have relational poverty and we've become disconnected from a sense of shared community, faith and family. And so in order to heal, we need to not only have uh, heal as individuals, but rather as a collective. And so we need to disconnect from electronics and reconnect with the things that promote a sense of cohesion, purpose, meaning, and most importantly, a sense of belonging. Mm. I did a workshop a while back with uh, on the neurobiology of addiction, and that same theme came up that we need community, we need connection, that it's so important for us as humans. It really is vital. And if we're going to if we're going to heal as a collective and as a community, we need to be mindful of those things and, and strive towards that. Yeah. Yeah. That and neurodevelopmentally, how important it is to have that in early development. Absolutely. To have that connection. And... Yes, because one of the things that I didn't mention is the malleability or the, the brain's ability to change over time. So the younger the child, the more malleable the brain. And the brain is more elastic in the higher portions. And so as we age, um, it's more difficult then to have interventions that are targeting the lower portions of the brain Mm -hmm. and also vital that we get in there as soon as possible. I know when I took part in your family program workshop, that the neuroplasticity that we talked about, that resiliency and that it is, it is repairable. A lot of it. Absolutely. Yeah, so I've seen big changes with children over time. Well, as I mentioned, you have there's a family program. There's you do a lot of work. You're currently at Nomina Wellness, the comprehensive stay facility in Comox. Yeah. So if things are moving forward the way that I think they are moving forward, and the likelihood of me relocating to Alberta. Um, to the Cochrane area, then I will be doing a lot of clinical work out in that area. And so we'd be absolutely available if people were interested in having uh, brain metrics done on children or looking at neurodevelopmental trauma. Okay. Well, it is www.nominawellness.ca. But again, people can comment. We will put them in touch with you. if they And, and if anyone has questions, they can comment and I'll feed those off to you. But thank you so much, Sonia. This is fascinating. I hope that we can do this again. And maybe we can talk about neuroplasticity or the neurobiology of addiction. There's so many different things that we can talk about. There really is. Yes, no problem. I look forward to speaking with you in the future. 
all of our podcasts are recorded on YouTube as well. For those of you who prefer to watch as opposed to listen, just check out Nomina Wellness on YouTube. And as always, feel free to reach out if you are struggling. We have Nomina Integrated Health Community Clinics located across Canada, as well as our comprehensive stay treatment facility in Comox, British Columbia. So thank you and mental health really does matter. 